Happy Pride Month, everyone. This is Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast, and I'm Alexander Carpenter. This week, I'm joined by a special guest, Alicia Johnston, who four years ago shocked the Adventist world when she resigned as pastor of Arizona-based Foothills Community Church of Seventh-day Adventists and released a video online in which she talked about her bisexual identity and the conflict that created for her. Since then, Alicia has been working on a book that I've recently read called The Bible and LGBTQ Adventists, a theological conversation about same-sex marriage, gender, and identity. We'll be talking about her book today, as well as how she's been surviving quarantine and what's bringing her joy these days. Thanks so much for listening. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and today I'm honored to be joined by Alicia Johnston. Thanks for talking with us today. I am really happy to be here. So am I. And I think let's start in 2017. So Adventists remember um, the the video that you released, which was connected to your resigning from your role as the pastor of Arizona's Foothills Community Church of Seventh-day Adventists, uh, that not only made news in Adventism, but also on uh, NBC News, to name uh, several outlets. And I just want to check in with you and see what you're up to these days. Well, the biggest thing that I'm up to is um, finally finishing the book I've been working on for three years, which um, kind of pays down on the promise that I made in that video, I suppose, in a sense. It took me a lot longer to write it than I thought. Um, I did a lot of a blogging when I came out about what affirming theology looks like and why I believe it's the best biblical approach to LGBTQ people, but um, I felt like I needed to do something more. So. Um, about a year after I came out, I started working on the book and I am done with it. I'm going through edits from my editor, so <laughs> I just need to finish those and um, have it proofread. And yeah, it's kind of wild. I've been working on it for a really long time. Oh. Um, yeah, I live in Phoenix, Arizona with my wife and puppies and uh, <laughs> do a few other things to make ends meet, but that's uh well good well uh congratulations on this book and thanks for sending it to me i've read it and the title uh is the bible and lgbtq adventists a theological conversation about same-sex marriage gender and identity and um it's a mouthful of a title it's over 300 pages long but i enjoyed the read in part because uh, your style of writing, it feels like I'm listening to a favorite pastor, sort of explaining <laughs> things in ways that are very understandable. 
and I think very approachable for folks who may be intimidated by the subject matter. Um, what made you want to uh, do this project? One of my biggest driving forces was writing the book that I needed a few years ago and what I really wish would have been there. It would have probably saved me a few years of struggle and wandering in the wilderness. <laughs> so um, I want, yeah, I just really wanted to write something that in every, in every kind of way would have been approachable to me from um, that mindset that I was in feeling that the Bible was really pretty clear um, and feeling that the Bible was really consistently against same-sex relationships, but also knowing that I probably should have read more on the subject. Like a lot of people feel like like that. I haven't met a few people who feel, who I haven't met very many people who aren't actually queer themselves who would say, oh yeah, I've, I've totally looked into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I kind of wanted to write write that book that really addressed in a very respectful, clear, understanding way of uh, those conservative viewpoints and where they're coming from, and also responded in a way that was theologically and biblically robust and solid, which I really believe affirming theology is. And so it, um, it, it took a while to tease out exactly how to explain all those things and to learn new things and, and new depth that I didn't know. But um, I was really happy when I first started giving the book to beta readers and they told me I was hitting my marks on those things. So that felt pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, let me just give folks uh, a sense of the, the range. And then I want to jump into kind of one of your central points, which is that folks can be affirming they can um, uh, take serious the Bible and they can um, uh, feel like they're good Adventists all at the same time. Um, and the, what you go through here, uh, in addition to telling your story, is talking about uh, this in a very theological way. You're talking about... Um, the uh the role of gender um in genesis you're talking about the biblical definitions of marriage you're talking about history um and you're leaving us with some ideas for ways that we can um wherever we find ourselves um on the on a gender spectrum or in a, a kind of allegiance to Seventh-day Adventist uh, institutional um, identity feel like uh, the, con the conversation can continue. So um, how do you, uh, why was it important for you to write this book this way in that you're really coming from a conservative theological you're affirming conservative theology um, and helping folks understand that it doesn't have to be a scary prospect to be um, affirming. Yeah, I, I, um, for one thing, in my own studies, it's something I came to believe was true and that uh, not enough people really realized or see it or it hadn't been 
clearly articulated, particularly for Seventh-day Adventists. Mm -hmm. So I saw a huge need for it to be articulated. And I also saw that for a lot of people who are really strong allies who have written on the subject, for a lot of them, um, they tie together the issues of affirmation and a more liberal approach to scripture, which um, I can I can understand someone having a, a desire, you know, who's come to a more liberal, more progressive understand or approach to scripture, it, having a desire for people to see all that picture that they see and that they believe. But I also just don't think that that's the best way to help um, people be affirming because you're putting an extra barrier actually in front of people being affirming. And there's a lot of people who are just never going to give up their approach to scripture and their allegiance to the Adventist church. And if we expect, you know, the whole Adventist church to crumble before we can become affirming, <laughs> you know, is, is almost the way that some people approach this topic. And I don't believe that's helpful, necessary, or true. So um, I wanted to approach this in a, in a different way that takes away a barrier that I, I think is um, artificial, even though I, I recognize still that it's well-intentioned and I wanna honor that. But um, I mean, the first people really to speak out in affirmation did so from a much more liberal perspective. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't wanna downgrade that, but I just, I don't think, I'm not one of those people who thinks that um, the world would be better off without conservatives or without the church. I just, I really think we as a society kind of need one another and that we can get there on this issue like we have on so many others. There's no hermeneutic or approach to scripture that conservatives aren't already using on another topic that can't be applied to this topic as well. And I really truly believe that the conservative churches also are moving in this direction. And if it weren't for the institutional forces, we would see just how many conservative pastors who I've had conversations with are affirming, fully affirming. Um, and I, I really believe we're moving in that direction historically. Um, it, by God's grace, we continue to go in that direction. I think the conservative church will become totally affirming one day and look back and, and identify with the, you know, probably, probably not as self-reflective as they could be. Like sometimes we all are looking back in history. Um, I think someday we'll just take it for granted that God's people have always <laughs> been affirming, or at least we're in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, well, from I, I like your prophetic vision. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so you tackle some of the hard areas like Leviticus, like Paul talking about um, the kind of Greek and Roman cultural uh, backgrounds that uh, are seeping into the Bible. Uh, what was the hardest uh, area for you as you were working through the thinking and the writing of this? Definitely the chapter on Romans 1. I probably rewrote it five or six times. <laughs> and then I, I really felt a need. Um, I, You know, I was talking to a friend at one point, and um, they said, look, it's more, it's more, uh, it's more, convincing if you just say it this way that this is the way it is and lots of people say that this is the way it is and and i just it's more complicated the way that you're explaining it or it's it's maybe and i said look 
I've really made a promise to myself to be totally honest about everything here. You know, I'm not going to cut corners or make arguments that I don't feel. Now, maybe I'll learn someday and change my opinion on something, but I'm going to do my very best to represent everything as truthfully as I can. And when you start looking at Roman cultural backgrounds, so many people say so many different things and learning to just sort it out and under, understand it and kind of see the best um, the best scholarly perspectives that are out there right now in the most honest way possible. It, it just really took me a while to sort through those things. And uh, it took me a while to um, be able to say it in a way that I hope is clear because <laughs> it was a lot of information if you've read those two chapters. Um, it was a lot of information and I wanted people to feel not only that it was clear, but that I'd given them enough of my notes you know, enough of that they could see my work, mm -hmm. that they could verify what I was saying and 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 not just have to feel like they have to take my word for it on any point, but that it was just a place where, like, I believe everything kind of comes together, that what Paul was saying was the same thing that fit perfectly with Roman culture and everything just fits together and makes sense. I just wanted people to be able to see the gestalt of it that was in my brain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, you have great endnotes, so I think folks uh, who are really curious about being good Bereans and studying this for themselves can really follow your work. Uh, so I recommend the book to them for that reason as well. In the NBC article, you were quoted as saying, pay attention to the lives of those your theology impacts. And I thought that was such a, a good uh pastoral statement to folks to remember that the theology they have is connected to their ethics. And that was, you know, four plus years ago. When someone's done reading your book, um, what sort of uh, theological uh, ideas do you want them to leave with? And what sort of ethical actions would you like them to take? Well, I think the major thesis of the book is that, you know, we as Christians should affirm and celebrate, support and work on just building same-sex marriages in the same way that we do all marriages. Mm -hmm. um, and people who are transgender that we should support, um, support them and the choices that they make regarding what's best for them and their gender presentation and identity and those things. Um, so, I mean, just like in a really clear way, like that, that's it. Um, I think in a broader sense, it's the same frustration that I've had about theology for many, many years and that I share with a lot of conservative people, which is that I, I want people to look at the Bible, not just Bible verses. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Like I, I want people to see the picture of what the Bible is about and what the point of it really is instead of just kind of ping-ponging from verse to verse that we find in our index but to really seek a more complete understanding of scripture that is really rooted in the principles of scripture when when we look more at these individual texts and we try to apply them in literal ways we very easily end up reading our own ideas into the text and I think I would like for people to be able to see the, the big picture of the text. And we also tend to 
try to um, look at the Bible in a way where it's like our nose is so close to the page that we can't see anything else as if it has no relevance to the world around us. Mm -hmm. And this has huge implications for this subject because we inevitably read our understanding of who LGBTQ people are into the texts. So a lot of the arguments that have been accepted within the church really had their origin in a time where what would have been referred to as homosexual people were seen in a particular light and where this sounds a little bit weird but it's it was something that was said quite openly in the 70s where people thought of homosexuality almost as contagious mm -hmm. you know like a phrase that people would actually say is you know homosexuals can't reproduce so they have to recruit this the implication being that people were gay because they were so sexually assaulted by someone else who was gay who was trying to make them gay and these were things that were really believed widely within conservative circles not very long ago when these theological beliefs had their origin and if you think that that didn't make its way into the interpretations of romans chapter one you know or or just ideas that homosexual people are incapable of monogamy and that you know they're just this ravenous it, it actually I, I think it was the review and herald actually described gay sex as animal-like and death-oriented at one point so when these kinds of and it's somewhere in the book <laughs> when, when these kinds of assumptions about lgbtq people are held it inevitably makes its way into the theology inevitably you you, you can't you can't help that you'll just you'll read romans one and, and you'll think oh yeah that's what they're like you know and so it's important that we look at scripture and understand what it means in its big picture and like understand the flow and the movement of the text it's also important that we stick our head up every now and then and be sure about the question we're actually asking of the text in the first place so that we know how to apply it on that note of of sort of understanding the text and how to apply it and how people's attitudes and behaviors can change uh, so that they, you know, find themselves aligned biblically with what you're arguing. You stayed in there for folks who are, you know, kind of connected to Adventist institutions, pastors, administrators, that um, it's, uh, I think you say that change never comes from inside it has to come from outside um that's something that i really wrestle with myself and i think uh, a lot of adventists who are connected to institutions in some way struggle with what you know we have these values and we have hope for the church uh quote unquote um in the large sense changing um and you have been inside and outside leadership roles in in the church tell me about how you feel change should happen best i think we have to be realistic about the limitations of how much an institution is actually capable of changing now for example we can see on women's ordination that there's been change 
but there's never been change in a place where the constituents had not already changed and we're not asking for that change. So you don't, you, you know, leadership who wants to bring about change can make incremental changes and they can make small changes and they can, they can create um, an environment where change might be more likely, but ultimately the ultimate change that we're looking for doesn't happen until it, it happens on the local church level. Um, and maybe that's a bit of a less cynical way <laughs> to put it that um, really in the end of the day, the Adventist church is led from the ground up. We've just kind of forgotten that in a certain way. And, and in a lot of ways, some, some very extremist uh, people on, on the fundamentalist end of things uh, have really manipulated the institution uh, quite, a, quite a bit. Um, you probably are familiar with some of that. Um, and, but, but really, it, all those things just work to tie, to tie the hands of the institution. And if we really want to change, if we really want to have a conversation on this subject, and I guess this is the point that really this is all about is if we really want to have a conversation on this subject we can't wait for it to be initiated by any level of the institution all the way down to your local church pastor there might be a few exceptions to that in terms of the local church pastor but we can't wait for conferences to initiate change and to say hey let's have a real robust conversation about our theology on this because maybe we're wrong the institution's hands are tied it's not that nobody wants to do that but anybody who's decided to put their job on the line to try to do that probably doesn't have a job anymore. You know, it's not that no one's tried. <laughs> it's just that this is just how institutions work. And, you know, as Christians, as Adventists, we need to take responsibility for our own faith and responsibility for our own theology. And it really needs to be led from the ground up if we can have a conversation like this. We can't wait around. It can't be through the Pacific press. It has to be through something like this. And that's what I kind of realized and, and, and said, this is the direction I could go. And that's not to say that people who are affirming and maybe not publicly vocal about it, aren't making a huge difference to the people in their congregation. Because I know lots and lots of stories where pastors who are affirming, who maybe haven't spoken out in a big public way, have made a tremendous difference in the lives of their queer congregants because they've been willing to take some risks and be affirming for them and, and help them at a time that the impact of that cannot be overestimated. You know, when someone in the Adventist church who's queer finds an ally um, in, in leadership and ministry and a, a teacher or a pastor or a church employee and, and that that person really lets them know they're okay, <laughs> um, that makes a tremendous difference on people's lives. Yeah. I can't imagine if I would have had that experience. I never did, but I know some people do, and it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the hopes that I have for in education is the ability of um, faculty and, and staff um, to, to actually, through their kind of personal witness, be able to help queer students um, understand, um, you know, what, what Adventism really can uh, mean, and of course that they're loved. Yeah. Let's talk about you for a little bit, if you don't mind, um, because obviously you talk about your story in the book, and 
you know, all uh, theology like politics is local. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, what you, you know, you got your MDiv at Andrews and you are um, obviously a gifted pastor. What was it about the ministry that attracted you? Everything, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It just, um, it's something I still wrestle with whether local church ministry is something to do in my future, although I'm doing this now and it seems like the right thing for now. But I just had a really sense of strong sense of calling that didn't really go away. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's something that suits my giftedness and and just the things that I am more drawn to naturally and that are easy for easier for me to do. Uh, I think we all need to try to find careers and, and, and callings in life that are the things that are easier for us to do than harder so we can hopefully get really good at them. <laughs> and so it, it just, yeah, it's just something that I always felt passionate about local church leadership and the trans formative power of the gospel and of Christian community and what that can do for a person in their life is really quite profound at times. It seems to me like you got a lot of joy out of um, being a pastor. And I think somewhere you say that, you know, some someone who is drawn to the ministry should only do it if they have to do it. Uh, something sort of core to their soul. Do you do you feel like this book is an extension of your ministry? That this is you sort of ministering through the word and and reaching a community of folks, um, not just LGBTQ readers, but you know conservative Adventists or Adventists of any stripe, and and delivering a message uh, for these times. Oh, that's so interesting that you would say that because I'd actually never made that connection to that thing that I say. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I felt very much like this book was something that I had to write, uh, almost like I didn't have a choice. And it's been really hard to do. So um, I probably wouldn't have done it if I felt like it was optional for me. But for some reason, it didn't feel optional for me. I mean, um, somebody has to do it or it's not going to get done. And it seemed like I'm a person who's able to do it. And so that here we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, we're sort of coming out of uh, quarantine uh, here in the U.S. And, uh, you know, a few months in, there were memes and, you know, videos going around of, you know, people recounting all the stuff that people accomplished during the 1919 uh, flu pandemic and you know look what this person created and that person created so my hat goes off to you for writing a book <laughs> i know it's been a longer process but you know here during pride month in 2020 month uh, 2021 you've uh, produced something and so um, it must feel good to to have this going out to readers. When will folks listening to this be able to read it? The Kickstarter goes live June 18. And uh, so I need to finish that stuff. <laughs> but the Kickstarter goes live June 18. And so that's going to be your first opportunity to buy the book. And I'm estimating that in September, it will be shipped to people who support the Kickstarter. 
And at some point after that, it'll become available um, just broadly. But that'll, I mean, that'll just be a huge help for anyone who can contribute to that um, by buying a book or any of the other rewards or even just helping with the finances of this because um, I've had some people donate some of their services, which has been amazing, but then others, you know, you have to pay for and um, initial printing costs and things like that. Um, I'm self-publishing. I just didn't even send it to Pacific Press for some reason. <laughs> I didn't think that was going to work out. Um, but it also gives me an opportunity to um, give books to people who need it that you don't really get if you're going through a traditional publisher and to do some things like that. So um, I'm, I'm just excited to get this in as many hands as possible. And, um, you know, there's opportunities to buy the book for yourself and also to buy it for uh, other folks that you think might need it so or could benefit from it. Great. So. Well, we'll include links to that. And I'm sure folks will want to check that out for themselves. Can you talk a little bit about who's uh, who's been helping you along this journey? Have you been pretty much doing this on your own? Have you had some Adventist folks as dialogue partners through this process? Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I'm really fortunate to know a lot of people in the Christian queer community who've published books. So um, I, I'm able to run things by them at times. And a lot of my experience of initially writing the book was very solitary because it was just very difficult to to integrate all the information and then to synthesize it in a way that made sense and you know i i was so grateful when people started telling me that the reading was really approachable and easy to read because i had iterated so many times to get to that <laughs> point um so <laughs> i was very grateful um, but when I really started sending it out to beta readers, um, there, there's maybe a couple dozen people who've read it at this point, but I, I had a formal process that several beta readers went through, including Adventist pastors and people who are conservative and people who weren't conservative and just kind of the spectrum of people. The only thing I stuck to was people who are Adventist. And I really integrated a lot of their feedback into the book to um, help you know, sometimes it was like that worked, yay. And sometimes um, I had to rework things and change things and they helped me get the, the title right, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, so they, they were, their, their help was just invaluable and in helping me um, to do it. But I, I, I really do think one of the best ways of really dialogue and understanding is just reading other people's books and articles mm -hmm. and theological position statements, yeah. <laughs> which there's been several in the church and I've spent a lot of time with those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it is a, a joy to read. And um, one of the things that I associate with you because you've, uh, you've expressed it is uh, the idea of joy, which I think is so central to the Christian walk and being part of a community. Um, as we're wrapping up here, can you just talk about what's bringing you joy these days? You're sort of bringing something new into the world through this book and really hope, giving us hope for the future. Um, so what's, what's uh, motivating you? Seeing human beings. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it's just amazing. It's like, I, I don't know if other people feel this way, but I just feel like I'm waking up from a dream, you know, and it's like, what just happened? Yeah, totally. <laughs> but actually, you know, I, I trust the science. I'm following the CDC recommendations, which means as a fully vaccinated person, I'm pretty free to go out and see friends and, and hugs and it's... <laughs> Give hugs. Yeah, it's it's, you know, go back to places, coffee shops and places that I love and haven't been to for a year. And um, yeah, just it's it's been really great. And actually, like seeing a cover for my book and talking about it and bringing it out to the world and the number of people who have been so enthusiastic to help me get the word out about it, um, or to help me with getting the book finished up has been just like overwhelming in a really good way um, to feel, you know, you work on something kind of at your desk and you're, you're just working away by yourself and it, it can be just this very interior process. Mm -hmm. And then to put it out in the world and see like, there's a community that wants this book really badly and that is really behind it. And it um, it's wonderful to 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 see that and to feel like oh yeah this is not just like me working away in my study this is this is um this is something that's that's about the work that a lot of people have done and the work that a lot of people just want a tool that they can use to share these ideas and to be able to provide that and and do something like that is a true true blessing and a true honor mm. it's 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 a really incredible thing to be able to do <laughs> Well, thank you for blessing uh, us with your uh, labor of love here. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how your Kickstarter campaign goes. And uh, please come back uh, the next time you uh, write a book. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I would be quite happy to. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Take care. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely 